You're now tuning in to Yale NUS After Hours, a student-run podcast featuring faculty research from Yale NUS College. Today, we'll be speaking to Prof. Alder Kellerman from Yale University about anthropology and agrobiodiversity. Dr. Alder Kellerman Saxena is a sociocultural anthropologist whose research sits at the intersection of the environment, food systems, and human well-being. Her dissertation studied the relationships linking agricultural biodiversity to food culture, food security, and nutritional health in the Bolivian Andes. Based on this research, She's preparing a book manuscript provisionally titled Culinary Code Switching, Agrobiodiversity, Indigeneity, and the New Bolivian Cuisine. Dr. Alder is also co-editor of the Pharaoh Atlas, Infrastructures of the More Than Human Anthropocene, an online project that blends together the environmental and digital humanities to tell the story of the Anthropocene as a multi-species history. Thank you for joining us, Prof. Could you tell us more about your research interests? Yes. Yeah. So um, I am trained as a sociocultural anthropologist, and I work in environmental anthropology and the anthropology of food. Um, and the research that I do is on the role of agricultural biodiversity and food security and food culture in the Bolivian Andes. What was it about food and agrobiodiversity that piqued your interest? I got into working on agrobiodiversity by way of a different route. I did an undergraduate degree in biology, and um, then I spent some time doing um, an independent research project that focused mostly on medicinal plants. Um, and I got sort of interested through that process in the role that some of some of the medicinal plants that grow in sort of tropical forest areas um, play in sort of conservation and sustainability. Um, and through that, I started realizing that actually some of those were things that people ate. Um, that was, you know, it's a silly thing, but that was something that was non-obvious to me first because I was coming f- with the lens of, bi- of biologists or maybe somebody who would want to work in international development and thinking, oh, well, these are things that you grow, they're things that you sell. But I wasn't really thinking about them as food. Um, so I think what, what sort of pushed me in this direction was starting to think about, first, about agricultural landscapes as a place where biodiversity also lives, you know, where people steward it and cultivate it. But then realizing that they were growing these things, the people that I was working with were growing these things not just um, not just for the market or to feed to livestock, but actually they really thought about them as food. And then that had a whole set of sort of really textured associations with, um, you know, enjoyable moments together with friends or tastes or flavors that they really like. For liked. many of us who don't have a full picture of how anthropological research on food is conducted, uh, we, may, we might not be able to conceive of the sheer breadth of anthropological research. Could you give us a taste of what anthropologists like you look into when they look at food? Um, there's, a, there's, there's a lot. I mean, as, as you mentioned, it's a broad, a broad arena. The, the core method of anthropology, to the extent that you can say there is one, is participant observation. Um, so what that means is that the anthropologist um, goes to a place with a group of people and tries to become integrated as much as possible into the activities that are happening in that place. Um, so you take notes along the way, you watch what other people are doing, you ask questions. Um, sometimes you might just sit back and observe and take notes on what you're watching. Um, and you can do that in a lot of different ways, but you can sort of imagine in, um, in studying food, almost any environment where food is prepared, served, disposed of, um, shared, um, you can spend time trying to do the same things that, that people who are living in that environment do. So you could 
um, you could work in a restaurant and, you know, be part of a server staff for a certain period of time and um, make observations based on that. Or you could ask people about recipes and then prepare them together. Or, um, you know, you could spend time trying to become integrated in a larger community and get invited to birthday parties or festivals and think about the role that food plays in those places. Um, one of the things that I've found most interesting and surprisingly productive in, um, in this kind of field of research is to not just to consume food that's been offered to me, but also to make food and share it with others. Um, because that's where you're sort of, you know, when you cook, you make certain assumptions about what tastes good. And sometimes you share that with other people and they tell you, no, that's sort of weird, or, you know, you could have done it this way, or, hey, I really like this. It reminds me of this other thing that I ate. Um, so there's a, there are a lot of roles for really um, sort of active and creative research methods in this field. Could you give us an example of something that changed the way you see and understand food? I, it sort of follows on to that, actually. Um, so one of the things that, that we did in my dissertation field work in Bolivia was to gather um, a set of, it was about 35 varieties of potatoes that were grown in the area where I was doing research. Um, so we did that at the end of one agricultural season together with the NGO that I worked with and then um, found a plot of land that a group of farmers were willing to lend to us and planted those potatoes and, and grew them out over the course of another field season. And at the end of that season, we took data on sort of comparatively how they grew and how they responded to environmental conditions, but then we also did some participatory evaluations with the farmers that lived in the local community. Um, one of those evaluations was a, a taste test, essentially. Um, and what really surprised me in that, so we, um, together with, with a group of um, field assistants, nutritionists who I was working with, we boiled the potatoes in the morning. We, we put them all in a you know big container and we took them hot to a community meeting and asked people to taste them and rate them on a scale of sort of one to three in terms of how much they liked them. And some of the varieties that I thought were most sort of intellectually interesting um, you know, these sort of beautiful knobby varieties that you see pictures of from the Andes. Um, the, f the, the farmers who were tasting them were um, qualifying as like really bad, you know, like the lowest possible qualification. Um, and I thought that was really strange and then I picked one up and I tried it myself and it was really bad. Um, and part of what that started me down a road to start sort of thinking about um, also within a research framework we asked them, well, why are these bad? And they said, well, you boiled that potato. That's supposed to be for freeze drying. Or you boiled that potato, but it's really supposed to be for french fries. Um, and those two differences, and one, it sing signals the fact that um, even if something is called potato, right? Like even if they're all potatoes, um, the material characteristics of these foods are not necessarily the same. So varieties are specialized for particular kinds of preparation processes. Um, the other thing that's interesting about that is that that specialization is not just due to breeding, it's also due to an environmental context because um, these high altitude varieties are exposed to really high levels of UV radiation, um, particular sort of patterns of like pests and predation. And the theory in ecology is that those things um, increase the likelihood that a crop will try to defend itself by, um, by generating bitter chemicals that either protect it from UV or make it less, um, less palatable to predators, including people, um, herbivores in this, in this case. Um, 
so you have this really interesting sort of convergence of like the environmental context that creates agrobiodiversity, the things that people have to do to cook them, to make, to cook these varieties of potatoes, to make them pal palatable, and then all this other sort of wide set of culinary practices that are possible to get the best flavor out of the material. And um, so, so I'd like to shift gears a little and, and, and talk a little bit about um, nutritional health in the Anthropocene. Um, so the issue of climate change will most certainly top the global agenda for years and perhaps decades to come, um, if we even live that long to see that happen. So scientists are telling us that one of the most important steps that we humans could take is to adopt a plant-based diet and drastically cut down on our meat consumption. And there is some good science for that as well. But I shamefully and woefully um, admit that I'm a recalcitrant carnivore and that I find it really hard to reduce my meat consumption drastically. So um, what can anthropology offer to save us from eating ourselves to extinction? That's a big ask. Um, so I, I actually, I'm not sure to what extent I can speak, speak to this as an anthropologist, but I can speak to it as a, as a, a converted vegetarian. Um, I grew up eating meat, but um, I'm now mostly, most of the time, vegetarian. And I think um, there are three different ways that I could maybe answer that question. The first is um, it's important to remember that meat consumption isn't, um, it's not a zero-sum game, you know? So um, for somebody who wants to eat less meat, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to give it up all the time, but, you know, you could eat one, you know, one less serving per week and still have, um, you, could, you could improve your climate footprint. Um, the second answer to that would be that, like, as somebody who grew up eating meat and has subsequently become vegetarian, I've had to rethink the way that I cook and the way that I look at a plate. So, um, Western meals, particularly, I think, are often built around like meat as the sort of central, central element, and then the side dishes might be vegetarian dishes, um, but they're not really things that would be filling to eat on their own. And if you look into, um, I guess, particularly South Asian cuisine, but I think this is true of um, cuisines from other places where vegetarianism is more common, there are lots of other ways of putting together a plate where you have a nutritionally nutritionally satisfying meal. Um, and also something that tastes really good that don't focus on meat as the star player um, with the vegetables only being sort of accompaniments. So I think even just thinking about like what the center of the plate is or if the plate has to have a center can be helpful in terms of changing your cooking practices. Um, the last thing I would say on this count um, is that even if you want to keep eating meat, um, it's worth thinking about the the conditions under, wh under which that meat was produced. Um, so we can't all afford to eat free-range and organic all the time, right? But um, there is something to be said about the backwards chain of impact that you have when you source products that were sustainably and ethically raised and harvested, um, as opposed to, um, you know, particularly animal products that, that are raised in industrial feedlots or industrial settings. Um, so, you know, even for folks who don't want to give up meat entirely, there's um, some value, I think, to integrating um, purchasing practices that target, um, you know, environmentally conscious industries into what you eat in a week. Thank you for tuning in to Yo NUS After Hours. This episode is written and hosted by Austin Ng from Class 2021. And if you'd like to learn more about Prof. Order's work, please follow the link in the description below. It will also be immensely helpful to us if you could rate and subscribe wherever you get a podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Till then, goodbye.